Welcome to Zurich's Risk Insight Series on Coronavirus. What businesses need to know now. I'm Colleen Ziff, Chief Risk Officer for Zurich North America. We know many of you are seeking guidance as businesses continue to manage the evolution and impacts of COVID-19. To help your business deal with this challenging time, Zurich Insurance has brought together several of our key leaders in risk management to share our risk knowledge with you. The insights in this presentation are designed for business risk managers, CFOs, insurance distributors, or others who are in charge of mitigating risk throughout an organization. You will hear the critical insights to help manage day-to-day operations as you navigate the growing risks associated with COVID-19 and plan strategies for protecting your businesses, employees, and the communities you serve. Risk management is Zurich's business, and we want to be your trusted source for risk knowledge that can help you protect your business, your employees, and your community. Thank you for allowing us to help you understand and manage the risk to COVID-19. In this segment, you will learn about why the virus is different than anything we've seen before and what you can do to help stop its spread. I'm Dr. Nina McElroy, Vice President of Medical Management at Zurich North America. I am closely following the developments related to the global spread of the coronavirus and the resulting illness, COVID-19. COVID-19 is short for Coronavirus Disease 2019 and has been declared a pandemic by the World Health Organization. We are concerned about these developments and the number of illnesses and mortality worldwide. That's why we are sharing information about what we all can do to help protect ourselves, our families, our businesses, and our communities. Our actions can make a real positive difference in the course of this public health emergency. After listening to this segment, you'll know how to make your own antiseptic solution, which comes in handy when you can't buy it in the stores. We're also sharing interesting insights that you might not have heard already. For example, based on what we know now, the coronavirus can remain on cardboard surfaces for up to about 24 hours, but can exist up to two to three days on plastic and stainless steel. This virus can and will be defeated. As with any virus, you deny the virus enough new hosts or people, and it will eventually die out. But to assure success, we must take steps both individually and collectively to block access to the new vectors, or in this case, people, the virus needs to survive. First, let's learn about the virus causing the respiratory illness designated COVID-19. It's called a novel coronavirus. Novel meaning it's a strain we haven't encountered before. Under an electron microscope, the virus looks like a tiny sphere or ball with spiky protrusions resembling the sun's corona, hence coronavirus. Coronaviruses are common. In fact, we've all had them. The common cold is part of the same family of viruses. The difference with the COVID-19 strain is that it appears to be more contagious, more virulent, and more dangerous 
to individuals with underlying health conditions and the elderly. This new coronavirus first emerged in Wuhan, China in December 2019. Investigators traced it to an outdoor live animal market. The Chinese government enacted a containment strategy that included strict isolation and quarantines of infected persons once the threat of COVID-19 became apparent. Unfortunately, despite those actions, the virus broke out into a broader infection, ultimately spreading around the world. To the best of our knowledge, COVID-19 arrived in the U.S. in late January, although it is hard to be sure due to the infection's frequent early misdiagnosis as other conditions. Once infected, it can take up to a week or two before symptoms appear, usually presenting with body aches, fatigue, a fever, or a dry cough. About 80% of cases are mild, sometimes producing no symptoms at all. The remainder can be more severe, especially for older people and those with underlying health conditions like diabetes, chronic respiratory conditions, and those with compromised immune systems, such as patients undergoing cancer treatment or conditions requiring immune suppressive therapy. So where do we stand as we approach the second quarter of 2020? Like China, our initial response to the presence of COVID-19 in the US was containment, attempting to prevent the virus from spreading beyond a limited number of clusters. But like China, that strategy has been unsuccessful. We have now moved beyond containment to a mitigation strategy aimed at reducing community transmission wherever possible. The goal is to extinguish the spread of the disease by denying it access to new hosts. In many states, we are seeing orders of safer at home or shelter in place. The goal of these measures is to dramatically reduce the opportunity for the virus to spread. As mentioned earlier, from what we know now, the coronavirus can remain on cardboard surfaces for up to 24 hours, but can exist up to two to three days on plastic and stainless steel. Use hand sanitizers and antiseptic wipes if you can get them. They're scarce right now, so if you can't find them at your local grocery store or pharmacy, make your own solution by mixing a solution of 70% rubbing alcohol and 30% water. For hard surfaces that can withstand chlorine or alcohol solutions, clean these surfaces several times a day. In terms of interactions with other people during this public health emergency, you've heard the term social distancing. This simply means maintaining an interval of space between yourself and others, even if they show no signs of infection. We've learned that people infected by the coronavirus can shed the virus days before showing symptoms, and some may never show symptoms at all. So, it is important to avoid contacts such as handshakes, sharing cups or water bottles, or any other actions that can transmit the virus. If you're tempted to slap a high five after closing a deal or making a basket at the gym, don't. Even that can spread the coronavirus. Most gyms and many offices are closed right now. When they reopen, wipe down the gym equipment before and after use, and do the same to your workplace. Clean your keyboards, 
phones, and other equipment several times a day. During personal interactions, try to keep an interval of six feet from others at work or in the community. Avoid participation in large group activities and cover your mouth if you feel a cough or sneeze coming on, even if it means sneezing into your elbow sleeve. If you feel ill, don't take chances with your or other people's health. Go home and call your doctor to assess your situation. Do not immediately drive to a hospital emergency room or a doctor's office unless you feel you or your family member are experiencing an emergency. If you don't have coronavirus, you risk becoming infected by a COVID-19 active patient waiting to be seen. If you do have the virus, you risk infecting others. Talk to your doctor by phone or Skype. Describe your symptoms and act on your physician's recommendations, which may include being tested. While the pace of coronavirus testing has been an issue in the U.S., with the recent national emergency declaration, the U.S. is significantly ramping up the deployment of testing kits and testing sites. As testing ramps up, we are seeing the number of confirmed cases rise as well. That's to be expected, but it's likely to be unsettling to many people. Keep in mind that gaining a clearer picture of the extent and localized clusters of infection will be a big help in successfully dealing with this crisis. It's natural to be concerned, but taking steps to impact our own health and well-being can help restore a sense of personal control in these trying times. And in fact, there's a great deal we can do right now to protect ourselves, our families, our businesses, and our communities from the spread of coronavirus. No doubt, you've heard that the single most important thing you can do to protect yourself, your family, and others is to wash your hands with antibacterial soap thoroughly and frequently throughout the day. It sounds simple, but it's true. The CDC recommends scrubbing at least 20 seconds in hot water every time you wash. Count down from 20, or as odd as this sounds, sing happy birthday twice. That'll take you at least 20 seconds. And don't forget to thoroughly clean your fingertips and under your nails. Equally important, do not touch your mouth, nose, eyes, or any other part of your face for any reason unless you have thoroughly washed your hands. By one estimate, we unconsciously touch our faces 16 times each hour. This is by far the most common cause of the spread of infection of any contagious disease, whether COVID-19, influenza, or the common cold. We're all human, and a habit like this is hard to stop, but make a conscious effort to break the habit to protect yourself. And as we noted earlier, social distancing decreases the ability for the virus to spread. All these actions are key things to remember if you have to go out during the Safer at Home initiatives communities are now implementing. In matters of healthcare, we all share personal accountability for behaviors and actions that can impact our well-being. The COVID-19 pandemic is no exception. The very idea of living through a pandemic is unsettling for all of us, especially those perceived to be at a higher risk. While there are many unknowns about this new virus, the fact remains there are many things we can do right now to help reduce our own risk and help stop its spread. Hi. 
I'm Chris Snyder, Property Risk Services Manager and Interim Head of Risk Services for Zurich Canada. In this segment, we will talk about how the COVID-19 virus has impacted global supply chains, what businesses can do now to minimize the disruptions and steps that businesses can take to reduce future risks. As the Interim Head of Risk Services Canada, I manage a team of 22 risk specialists in Canada as well as lead the North American Business Resilience Team. While having experience in property, casualty, and natural hazards, I'm also a specialist in supply chain and business interruption. Traditionally, businesses have thought of supply chain interruptions as more of a location-based fire interruption event. But in a global economy, supply chain resilience can be threatened by events that may not be related to a typical property loss. They can be caused by natural hazards that impact a broader geographical area, political unrest in other parts of the world, and liability issues such as product recall. These days, we're witnessing how a global pandemic like coronavirus is putting a strain on globally integrated supply chains. The spread of COVID-19 is not only impacting shipping lanes, ports, and locations, but also the people inside manufacturing facilities that are making the products. Businesses that are better prepared to address their supply chain risks are typically going to recover more quickly than those that are just beginning to understand how to strengthen the weak links. First, let's look at what makes COVID-19 different than previous global disruptors that we have witnessed in the past. The virus broke out in a particularly sensitive region of the world when it comes to supply chain risk. As one of the largest manufacturers of parts and products for businesses around the world, China is a highly susceptible country to supply chains. By clustering suppliers in a region, a single event like COVID-19 can have an even broader impact than typically expected. And unlike H1N1 and SARS outbreaks, the coronavirus has forced those infected and those coming into contact with those infected to go into quarantine for 14 days or more. Cities, regions, and in some cases whole countries have gone into lockdown to stop the spread, severely impacting the ability for companies within these regions to effectively continue with their business operating model and providing the necessary supplies of goods and services. While the primary concern of business leaders during the outbreak is to keep employees safe, many businesses need to remain operational and are reliant on the delivery and distribution of supplies and goods. There are two things that businesses should be doing concurrently and right away. The first is assessing your current exposure to supplies that have already been interrupted and sourcing alternative suppliers. If you have to prioritize, focus on the supplies that have the greatest impact on your revenue. The second is looking at locations that have yet to be interrupted and making sure those are secure. We know where the outbreak is concentrated today, but if you have a supplier in a region currently unaffected or minimally affected by the virus, but an employee has traveled abroad to an infected area and returns to work, they may put the plant at risk for shutdown. Finally, it's never too early to start learning from this event and applying those lessons to prepare your business for the next supply chain disruptor. Now is the time to update your global action plan, which will require monetary investment as well as investment in time and manpower. Lastly, one of the things that businesses can do is to look at where they have clustered their supplies and their suppliers. If they have the ability to move suppliers to a different region or country and diversify across the globe, they can help reduce their localized supply chain risk. Of course, 
They will need to consider the cost of such moves and balance it against their bottom line. Hello, I'm Clayton Shoup, Technical Director for Large Casualty in Risk Engineering Services at Zurich North America. As a risk engineer with 40 years of experience in industrial hygiene, worker health and safety, and risk management, I believe the COVID-19 pandemic has brought new attention to the importance of cleaning and disinfection, whether it's our hands and cell phones or, for businesses around the world, the cleanliness of their facilities. While many companies have ordered their employees to work remotely, it's simply not an option for everyone. In this segment, you'll learn strategies that can help your business reduce the spread of the coronavirus in your facilities. These include engineering options, administrative strategies, and cleaning and disinfection tactics. Let's start with the engineering options that can help reduce how a virus travels when people cough or sneeze. Temporary or permanent barriers can be added to work areas throughout your building to help reduce the potential for the virus to spread. For example, increasing the divider height between cubicles in an office or placing a glass barrier at the cash register in a convenience store. Also consider redesigning or adjusting work areas to support social distancing. Simply removing some tables and chairs in your cafeteria, using empty cubicles in an office to allow more spacing, or adjusting an assembly area in a manufacturing plant can provide more distance. Your business operations may be adjusted to reduce employee load too. This may mean setting certain machines on automatic or utilizing remote control options. You can also encourage social distancing by staggering work breaks and lunch breaks. But what if someone at your facility falls ill on the job? Isolation may be an effective tool. Identify strategic areas that could serve as effective isolation points throughout your facility. Another thing companies might want to consider is to alter their heating and air conditioning systems to increase fresh air intake and circulation. Improved airflow throughout the building may help reduce the risk of transmission. Contact a qualified HVAC professional for advice on ways to improve your ventilation systems. After engineering options, there are various administrative strategies that may assist companies in mitigating the spread of a virus. Maybe one of the most important lines of defense during a pandemic, or even the cold and flu season, is by educating your employees on how they can protect themselves through proper hand washing, coughing etiquette, and effective social distancing. There are many good resources available for education plans at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention website at cdc.gov. Educational information and materials may also be available from your state or local health departments. The use of signs can reinforce cough etiquette and the importance of frequent hand washing. Remember, for 20 seconds each time. Signs can keep awareness high and reinforce your educational efforts. Post signs at building entrances that outline your company policies that prohibit working while sick or entering the facility if ill. Inside your building, bathrooms and all common areas are good places to post proper hygiene signs. The use of personal protective equipment, such as surgical type masks, is most effective when worn by ill individuals to help reduce the spread 
of droplets through coughing and sneezing. Obviously, these workers would not be allowed in your building. Beyond that, the effectiveness of single-use respirators or masks in protecting healthy workers from infection has not been completely confirmed, and in most medium or low-risk businesses like offices or manufacturing facilities probably should not be needed. Finally, let's talk about cleaning and disinfecting, which have been shown as an effective way to help minimize the spread of a virus through surface contact, whether it's COVID-19, seasonal flu, or colds. It is always important to have discussions with your cleaning or janitorial staff, whether they're your in-house staff or a contract service, to create a thorough plan for your facility and ensure it is rigorously followed. The COVID-19 crisis makes these discussions even more important. Guidance from the CDC indicates that routine cleaning should be appropriate for most areas. But keep in mind that frequently used items may need more cleaning, as often as several times each day. The list includes anything that might be touched by many people, such as door and faucet handles, elevator buttons, light switches, computer monitors, mice and keyboards, public telephones, countertops, and conference tables. Is there a communal coffee pot, refrigerator, microwave, or vending machine in your common areas? Don't forget these either. Take a walk through your facility to identify additional items unique to your work site. The use of regular cleaning and disinfection materials should be sufficient in many instances. You may also wish to provide disinfecting wipes to employees and have them available in shared spaces. For their personal safety, all janitorial staff or cleaning service providers should receive training on the proper use of any chemicals, cleaning agents, and equipment. Additional training should be provided on the use of appropriate personal protective equipment, such as gloves or face shields. Training should also include specific processes, requirements for each area cleaned, and how to address the increased cleaning needed during a virus outbreak like this one. If your company uses a contracted cleaning service, service level agreements are important for you and your vendor. These agreements help avoid potential misunderstandings and disputes about the responsibilities and expectations for each party. A well-written service level agreement should include, at a minimum, four key directives. The areas to be cleaned and disinfected, the frequency of cleaning, the materials to be used, and any material-specific cleaning procedures and techniques. Additional items should be added to the contract to address any specific situations that may apply to your facility. It's also important that legal counsel review the terms and conditions of any service level agreement. In conclusion, it's important to keep communications consistent and continuous with your employees and vendors. Remember, your attention to cleaning and disinfecting not only helps reduce the risks, it also demonstrates to your employees that their health and safety is a top priority. Hi, I'm Jerry Kane, Vice President of Cyber Risk Engineering for Zurich, North America. In this segment, we will talk about how the surge in remote workers as employees shelter at home during the COVID-19 virus is increasing the cyber risks facing businesses and individuals. 
to help slow the spread of the COVID-19 pandemic, businesses around the world have urged, and in some cases mandated, employees to work from home for their safety and the safety of their colleagues, family, and community. We are seeing remote work on a scale never seen, thanks to technology not even dreamt of when the world experienced a similar event 100 years ago. Sadly, cyber criminals and malicious actors have access to the same technologies and are leveraging them to attack networks, unleash ransomware, steal personal information, and generally magnify the risks businesses face. One European cybersecurity firm estimates that cyber incidents have increased five-fold since the COVID-19 crisis began. For financial, healthcare, and many other businesses, as well as federal and state agencies dealing with sensitive data, there is little room for cracks in cybersecurity. But every home Wi-Fi network being used by a remote employee, especially those new to working from home, presents a potential point of entry for cybercrime. Your workforce needs to understand that your company's security standards are as important when working remotely as they are when in the office. Employers can offer valuable guidance to employees to help ward off threats. For instance, the dramatic upsurge in internet traffic may sometimes slow down response time. Networks may be strained as more people get online from home. If bandwidth becomes an issue, disconnecting lower-priority devices from the home Wi-Fi network can help. Shutting off a multiplayer video game or streaming platform may not win friends with one's offspring, but it can significantly increase efficiency and response time in finishing a project or report. Consider encouraging employees working from home to look for opportunities to work offline for a period of time. It's possible that an employee frustrated by slowing response time, may call the service provider for help. And one suggestion might be lowering security settings. Bad move. No such action should be taken without first consulting with the employer's technical support team. Remote employees, especially newbies, should also be reminded of the following good cybersecurity practices. Be wary of suspicious emails, downloads, links, USB drives, or other avenues that could introduce malicious software onto their laptops and into your network. Suspicious email attachments are perennial threats, and so are tried-and-true phishing and social engineering scams. A favorite gambit of cyber criminals is pretending to be one of your IT personnel asking for credentials. Employees should only speak with an IT staffer when they initiate the call, not the other way around. Every device accessing the home network must have all current patches and updates installed, including the antivirus software. When in doubt, your IT experts should run a check on the employee's Wi-Fi router management software to make sure it's running the latest firmware, which is designed to automatically update security flaws. It's also important to keep in mind the potential risks posed by the Internet of Things. Wireless printers that order their own cartridges online, refrigerators that monitor and report on their contents, voice-activated home assistants, and other devices can all present potential points of entry for hackers. If they're on the same network as your company-issued laptop, there is a risk. 
that's another reason why employees must have strong passwords for access to their home Wi-Fi networks unrelated to those they use for their work laptops. It's not uncommon for the home router to have a password 20 or 30 characters long. That's good because a password that strong will go a long way toward protecting your employees' equipment and your network. No access to your company's network should be allowed from a remote location unless employees' computers are equipped with access to a secure virtual private network or VPN. Data should also be stored on encrypted network drives to avoid loss in the event of a cyber attack, virus, or equipment malfunction. In addition, more companies are using multi-factor authentication, such as phone calls delivering verification codes, as an added security layer to ensure that only authorized users can access your network. There will certainly be difficult challenges to businesses and individuals in the days and months ahead in dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic, but we will get through them. And with prudent management and protection of your cyber resources and guidance to your remote workers, so will your network. In this segment, you'll learn about the most important priority for any economic entity, whether an individual, family, or organization of any size. You'll also learn the four steps of an effective risk management program. Hello, I'm Bart Shacknow, director of the Zurich Academy Broker Training Program. But today I'm sharing some thoughts with you from my days as a certified financial planner. During that time, I counseled hundreds of businesses and individuals on financial planning priorities. And in reviewing the priorities of businesses, families, and individuals, I know that many have it all wrong. Coronavirus is currently everyone's top concern. It is having, and when all is said and done, will continue to have a profound impact on our health, our economy, the companies we work for, products we buy, and the services we consume. We will get through this, but we can't forget that this is only one of the enormous challenges we will need to confront in the years ahead, including but not limited to climate change, extreme weather, cybersecurity, and economic and political instability. While crises can be extremely disruptive and sometimes frightening, they can also present opportunities for all of us to reassess our thinking about how we manage risks and develop resiliency strategies that are best suited to helping us survive and thrive in the midst of these challenges. We know that many insurance consumers have historically viewed insurance as a commodity. When the purchase of insurance has been needed, sometimes required by law, primary focus tends to be on finding the lowest price rather than seeking the most value. The period we are living through now may provide insurance consumers with an incentive to change this paradigm in the way they think about risk management and insurance. For most businesses, the focus on finding new markets, expanding revenues, attracting talent, and achieving consistent profitability are all top financial and business priorities. Individuals or families may prioritize saving for retirement, for education funding, or to take advantage of investment opportunities. But in truth, the most important priority for any economic entity is risk management and insurance. There's a simple reason for this. Any objective you have can be immediately compromised or forestalled by a sudden, unforeseen, and random catastrophic event. For example, a business may have rolled out a new product intended to dominate a market, only to have a catastrophic event completely change buyer perceptions and marketing prospects. 
One example that has dominated recent news headlines is the experience of Boeing in the wake of two fatal crashes within five months in 2018 and 2019. On a smaller scale, think of a family that has diligently saved for retirement and education funding but is hit with a medical emergency inadequately insured against, forcing the family to liquidate those hard-earned savings. Whether for businesses, families, or individuals, effective risk management is a four-step process, which includes the following. First, identify the risks and loss exposures that may exist. Second, prioritize those risks to determine which could have the biggest negative impact on your objectives. Third, utilize risk management tools to address those risks. This means avoiding activities that could cause a major loss So that could be stopping smoking for an individual or delaying the rollout of a new product that has not been sufficiently tested, taking steps to reduce the impact of a loss should it occur, like how sprinkler systems can reduce the severity or spread of a fire, assessing the level of risk that you can afford to retain through things like self-insurance or deductibles, and transferring those risks through insurance which cannot be managed through these preceding strategies. Finally, implement, monitor, and revise the plan when necessary. I I deliberately said when and not if, because circumstances are always changing. What worked last month or last year might not work today. The bottom line is this. The insurance industry enables and empowers its customers to pursue their business, family, and personal financial objectives. While the pursuit of those objectives may be executed perfectly, on plan and on schedule, those objectives may easily be imperiled or made impossible due to a random, unexpected event. An effective, comprehensive risk management and insurance program protects against those circumstances. It is the reason why formulating such a plan needs to be the number one priority for every business, family, or individual. Hi, I'm Krishna Lynch, Senior Healthcare Risk Management Consultant at Zurich North America. I'm clinically trained and have over 20 years of healthcare experience. The coronavirus pandemic is presenting healthcare providers with unprecedented challenges in the U.S., Canada, and around the world. In this segment, you'll learn about crisis standard of care for healthcare facilities in the wake of COVID-19. What happens when you don't have enough medical and care resources to save everyone? How do you decide who gets what? Do you save the most lives possible by giving more care to people who need it most? Do you favor certain groups, such as the old or the young? What if two COVID-19 patients need a ventilator and only one is available. In extreme cases, some people will not receive all the treatment they need. The question then becomes how to deliver the best care possible under the worst possible circumstances. Around the world, COVID-19 is testing the healthcare system's preparedness for a crisis. Crisis standard of care, also known as CSE, is when healthcare systems are so overwhelmed by a catastrophic public health event like a pandemic, it becomes impossible for them to provide the normal 
or standard level of care to patients. In situations like this, a formal declaration by a governmental entity would occur to recognize that healthcare systems are in crisis operations that may last for some time. Around the world, many governments are struggling with the decision to implement CSC actions. To illustrate what this means, in the United States, states may invoke CSC actions, which are outlined by the Institute of Medicine. CSC actions involve legal and regulatory support and guidance to cope with events where demand exceeds available resources that cannot be rapidly addressed through usual emergency management and coalition activities. State plans allow for the waiver of regulations that might limit how hospitals and doctors treat patients. For example, as a worst-case scenario, states may have to decide how to factor in age, pre-existing health conditions, overall life expectancy, and other criteria to determine which patients would have priority if there are not enough ventilators for COVID-19 patients. During a pandemic, crisis standards of care typically prioritize the survival of the group over the survival of the individual patient. As the COVID-19 pandemic spreads, governmental support to hospitals, emergency medical services, and other entities will focus on local planning for surge, including crisis care. Meanwhile, hospitals are focused on crisis care processes akin to surge capacity to handle the influx of patients, such as setting up outdoor triage tents and implementing other contingency measures should they run out of ICU beds or ventilators. The surge capacity of many hospitals to accommodate a pandemic is being impacted by the disruption in the availability of healthcare workers, medical equipment, inadequate numbers of ventilators, insufficient hospital beds, personal protective equipment, and medications. Why? Because of the interconnectedness of our global economy and the nature of supply chains, which have been compromised by this pandemic. In the U.S. and for many countries around the world, healthcare systems already operate at capacity on any given day, as evidenced by reports of crowded emergency departments. According to a recent report from the Society of Critical Care Medicine, the COVID-19 pandemic in the U.S. alone poses a unique challenge for a healthcare system that has 535,000 acute care beds and approximately 200,000 ventilators for what is projected to be an overwhelming number of critically ill patients requiring mechanical ventilation. Canada is experiencing a similar challenge. In worst case scenario, the healthcare system likely will not be able to provide the same quality of care as in calmer times. The goal is to take steps to slow that decline and avoid the dire life or death conundrums. That's why crisis standard of care plans, which should be developed before disaster strikes, are so critical. They help avoid situations where providers are required to make allocation or triage decisions 
whether to take a ventilator away from a patient who isn't improving to help save another patient who might. These choices represent the last resort in crisis care. Even if a healthcare organization hasn't created a robust CSC plan, it's worth fine-tuning in collaboration with your incident command system and local and governmental entities, even in the midst of this crisis. CSC plans help healthcare providers decide how to administer the best possible care when there are not enough resources to give all patients the level of care they would receive under normal circumstances. The goal is to contemplate strategies that may maximize care during a pandemic as a surge of COVID-19 patients increases. Hospitals may need to manage staffing issues should healthcare workers get sick themselves, such as pulling in administrators with medical training back into patient care or asking families to help with feeding and personal hygiene. From a supply standpoint, you may consider sterilizing and reusing disposable equipment. To manage the demands of crisis care, you may also need to optimize space limitations by putting patient beds in hallways, conference rooms, or tents, and use operating rooms for urgent cases only. Specific planning is critical for scarce resource situations, including the role of incident management, how subject matter experts and or clinical care committees are used, triage processes, and the necessary legal authority and legal environment in which CSC can be ethically and optimally implemented. The COVID-19 pandemic is unprecedented. It will require an unprecedented level of integrated planning, coordination, and follow-through among many disciplines and agencies, including state, provincial and local governments, emergency medical services, healthcare coalitions, healthcare organizations, and healthcare providers in the community. Thank you for listening. I'm Colleen Zitt. We want to hear from you. If you have questions or ideas for other segments, please email us at media at Stay well.